All right, we have reached <clears throat> the epilogue. Frequently asked questions. Did you originally identify more than 11 good to great possibilities? And if so, what good to great examples did not make it into the study? The 11 good to great companies were the only examples of our initial universe of Fortune 500 companies that met all the criteria for entrance into the study. They do not represent a sample. Yeah, yeah, I hope not. This is just going to be going over, like, how to, like, just, like, basic ethical research stuff. The fact that we studied the total set of companies that met our criteria should increase our confidence in the findings. We do not need to worry that a second set of companies in the Fortune 500 went from good to great. Okay, yeah, that's... So we're saying they're the only ones... By the way, we don't need to worry about other ones, because these are the only ones. Why did only 11 companies make the cut? There are three principles. First, we used a very tough standard. Second, the 15-year sustainability requirement is difficult to meet. Uh, okay, let me go back. I skipped a tiny bit. I thought it would be okay, but I think it's actually relevant here. There are three principal reasons. First... We used a very tough standard, and then in parentheses, three times the market over 15 years as our metric of great results, so I'd only skip the parentheses part. Second, the 15-year sustainability requirement is difficult to meet. That's literally the exact same thing. What the fuck? Third, we were looking for a very specific pattern. Sustained great results preceded by a sustained period of average results, or worse. Um, <clears throat> I just can't, yeah, we're moving along. I'd like to stress that the only 11 findings should not be discouraging. We had to set a cutoff, and we chose a very tough one. If we set a slightly lower hurdle, say 2.5, uh, then many more companies would have qualified. After completing the research, I'm convinced that many organizations can make the journey from good to great if they apply the lessons. The problem is not the statistical odds. The problem is that people are squandering their time and resources on the wrong things. What about statistical significance? Given that only 11 companies made the final cut as good to great examples, and the total study is 28 companies with comparisons. We engaged two leading professors to help us resolve this question. One statistician and one applied mathematician. The statistician, Jeffrey T. Lufdig at the University of Colorado, looked at our dilemma and concluded that we do not have a statistics problem, pointing out that the concept of statistical significance applies only when sampling of data is involved. Look, you didn't sample companies, he said. You did a very purposeful selection and found the 11 companies from the Fortune 500 that met your criteria. When you put these 11 against the 17 comparison companies, the probabilities that the concepts in your framework appear by random chance are essentially zero. Okay, that much is true. When we asked University of Colorado Applied Mathematics Professor William P. Briggs to examine our research method, he framed the question thus. What is the probability of finding by chance a group of 11 companies, all of whose members display the primary traits you discovered, while the direct comparisons do not possess those traits? He concluded that the probability is less than 1 in 17 million. Okay, that seems a bit much, but... 
there's virtually no chance, uh, a bit little, actually I should say, there's virtually no chance that we simply found 11 random events that just happened to show the good to great pattern we were looking for. Yeah, that might be right, actually, 11 times over. Um, we can conclude with confidence that the traits we found are strongly associated with transformations from good to great. Why did you limit your research to publicly traded corporations? Think we covered that? Data is available, but let's see. Publicly traded corporations have two advantages. A widely agreed upon definition of results. Okay, yeah, we definitely covered this 100% uh, in the uh, first chapter. And a plethora of easily accessible data. I'm not going to read a whole paragraph about what's different about private corporations. The answer is it's not publicly available data. So there you go. Question, why did you limit your research to U.S. corporations? Um, answer, we didn't want a bunch of fucking commies. Moving on. Uh, we concluded that rigor and selection outweighed the benefits of an international study set. The absence of apples-to-apples -apples stock return data from non-U.S. exchanges would undermine the consistency of our selection process. Okay, so the same reason. It's easier to get information. The comparative, I don't know why I'm still reading, but I will. The comparative research process eliminates contextual noise and gives us much greater confidence in the fundamental nature of our findings and having a geographically diverse study set. I don't think he really said anything there. Nonetheless, I suspect that our findings will prove useful across geographies. A number of the companies in our study are global enterprises, and the same concepts applied wherever they did business. Also, I believe that much we found, level 5 leadership and the flywheel, for instance, will be harder to swallow for Americans than for people from other cultures. Maybe. Um, yeah. Most of that was not actually explaining why they limited it. It's just more justifying that they did. Which is different. Uh, why don't any high technology companies appear in the study set? Probably just because it was released in 2000. That's what the answer would be if it, you know, if we were asking him today. But most technology companies were eliminated from consideration because they're not old enough to show. Okay, that's it. I'm done with that one. That's exactly what I said. How does good to great apply to companies that are already great? I suggest that they use both good to great and built to last to help them better understand why they're great so that they can keep doing the right things. As Robert Bergelman, <laughs> I like that name, one of my favorite professors from Stanford Business School taught me years ago, the single biggest danger in, da in business and life, other than outright failure, is to be successful without being resolutely clear about why you're successful in the first place. That sounds like the single biggest danger in the life of a privileged person who's spent his life getting degrees in business. Like that, I mean, I hear what he's saying, but how do you explain recent difficulties at some of the good to great companies? Every company, no matter how great, faces difficult times. There are no enduring great companies that have a perfect, unblemished record. They all have ups and downs. Okay, we get it. They all have... No, I'm not going to do that. The critical factor is not the absence of difficulty, but the ability to bounce back. Furthermore, if any company ceases to practice all the findings, it will eventually slide backward. I forget what the question was. How do you explain recent difficulties? Okay. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, 
It is not any one variable in isolation that makes the company creates the combination of all the pieces working together consistently over time. Uh, two cases. One, Gillette, which produced an 18 years of exceptional performance, rising over nine times the market, blah, blah, blah. They stumbled in 99. We believe the principal source of this difficulty lies in Gillette's need for greater discipline and sticking to businesses that fit squarely inside the three circles. Even greater concern uh, from industry analysts that Gillette needs a charismatic CEO from outside the group to come in. If Gillette brings in a level four leader, then the probability it'll prove to be an enduring great company will diminish. It sounded very passive-aggressive. Another troubling case is Nucor, which hit its peak in 94, 14 times the market, then fell off considerably. In the, in the wake of Ken Iverson's retirement, <sighs> Iverson's chosen successor lasted only a short time, before being ousted in an ugly executive suite battle. One of the architects of this boardroom coup indicated in the Charlotte News and Observer that Iverson had fallen from level 5 leadership in his old age and had begun to display more egocentric level 4 traits. Quote, in his heyday, Ken was a giant of a man, he said, but he wanted to take this company to the grave with him. Iverson tells a different story, arguing that the real problem is current management's desire to diversify Nucor away from its hedgehog concept. Iverson just shakes his head, wrote the News and Observer, saying it was to get away from diversification that Nucor became a narrowly focused steel products company in the first place. Whatever the case, loss of level 5 leadership, blah blah blah, future remains uncertain. That being said, it's worth noting that most of the good to great companies are still going strong at the time of this writing. Seven of the 11 have thus far generated over 20 years of extraordinary performance, with the median of the entire group being 24 years of exceptional results. A remarkable record. How do you reconcile Philip Morris? Here we go. How do you reconcile Philip Morris as a great company with the fact that it sells tobacco? Um, the next three paragraphs are just... A dollar sign in size 300 font. <clears throat> Perhaps no company anywhere generates as much antipathy as Philip Morris. Even if a tobacco company can be considered truly great, and many would dispute that, there is doubt as to whether any tobacco company can endure, given the ever-growing threat of litigation and social sanction. That's actually a, a good point that I think we brought up. Um, we don't have to just be talking about morality. We can be talking about the market because morality eventually, after millions of deaths, will come into play via legislation and just the public being less interested in buying it. Ironically, Philip Morris has the longest track record of exceptional performance from the date of its transition, 34 years. Well, it's the only one that's physically addictive, and it's the only company that made it into both studies, good to great and built to last. That is pretty funny. Sounds like a pretty good company with regards to profits. Uh, this performance is not just a function of being in an industry with high-margin products sold to addicted consumers. Philip Morris blew away all the other cigarette companies, including its direct comparison, R.J. Reynolds. But for Philip Morris to have <coughs> a viable future will require confronting square-on the brutal facts about society's relationship to tobacco and the social perception of the tobacco industry. A large percentage of the public believes that every member of the industry participates equally in a systematic effort to deceive. Fair or not, 
People, especially in the U.S., can forgive a lot of sins, but will never forget or forgive feeling lied to. Yeah, let's look up Philip Morris stock info. They have a market cap of 137.6 billion, price to earnings ratio of 20.6. Let's see R.J. Reynolds. I think it's called Reynolds American. So R.J. Reynolds, <clears throat> first of all, is owned by British American Tobacco, which is a bigger thing, but. They have 90.6 billion market cap. So um, that does imply at least that like subsidiary or whatever is uh, smaller. Although the Wikipedia article says uh, based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina is the second largest tobacco company in the U.S. behind Altria. Oh, Altria renamed from Philip Morris Companies in 2003. Okay. So Philip Morris is now called Altria. And it's still the biggest one. Interesting. I think. I forget what's interesting, but... Whatever one's personal feelings about the tobacco industry, and there was a wide range of feelings on the research team and some very heated debates, you know what? I... <clears throat> First of all, it's kind of a binary thing. There, I don't know how much of a range there can be, but... I could see debate about whether to include it, I'm a little troubled by a wide range of just feelings about the tobacco companies. Um, I would think that the only justification is like, well, we have to include it because uh, we're talking about business and they're a profitable business, which is totally makes sense. Um, anyway... <laughs> Having Philip Morris in both Good to Great and Built to Last has proved very instructive. It's taught me that it's not the content of a company's values that correlates with performance, but the strength of conviction. Oh, that's... Uh, I don't think you put that quite the way you want. That sounds... Uh, this is one of those findings that I find difficult to swallow, but they're completely supported by the data. Um, I don't think that's the point he means... I don't think that's the real point. Just the strength of conviction. I mean, that definitely helps, but it's also that when he says it's not the content of a company's values, it is. It's it's the content of their values insofar as those translate to profitability. It, you can, and in fact, many are not making moral decisions. Uh, but still making decisions that are good for their company. Like, I, <clears throat> it, it, the point is, it's very straightforward. Those aren't the same thing. How much money they make is not the same thing as having quote-unquote good morals. Also, I just realized saying quote-unquote and then using a word is a good way to phrase something when you can only think of a really poorly worded sentence, all I could think of was good, so I just put it in quotes. Um, question, can a company have a hedgehog concept and have a highly diverse business portfolio? 
Our study strongly suggests that the highly diversified firms and conglomerates will rarely produce sustained great results. Well, that sucks for our economy then, because that's only what happens now. Um, one obvious exception to this is GE, but we can explain this case by suggesting that GE has a very unusual and subtle hedgehog concept that unifies its, its agglomeration of enterprises. What can GE do better than any company? Develop first-rate general managers. That seems like a bit of a fudging the numbers type of thing. Like, oh, well, our hedgehog is a fuzzy hedgehog. You see? Look at him. He's adorable. He's a little fuzzy guy. In our view, that is the essence of GE's hedgehog. What would be GE's economic denominator? Profit per top quartile management talent. Think about it this way. You have two business opportunities, right? Both that might generate X million in profits, but suppose one of those businesses would drain three times the amount of top quartile management talent to achieve the same profits. The one that drains less management talent would fit with the hedgehog concept and the other would not. Okay, I think you made a clever argument there. Finally, what does GE pride itself on more than anything else? Having the best set of general managers in the world. Wow. That actually sounds like a f cool place to work. I mean, it sounds like a not shitty place to work, I should say. I don't know how cool the people are, but if that really is, I mean, just general profitability, like in good, you know, quote-unquote good management, uh, even if that's not like a cool manager, that's vastly superior than a really shitty manager. This is their true passion. More than light bulbs, jet engines, or television programming. GE's hedgehog concept, properly conceived, enables the company to operate in a diverse set of businesses, yet remains squarely focused on the intersection of the three circles. I guess the corollary to that would be <clears throat> there's a more specific set of circles inside those circles for each one of those circles, <laughs> if you catch my drift. What is the role of the board of directors and the transformation from good to great? First, boards play a key role in picking level 5 leaders. The recent spate of boards enamored with charismatic CEOs, especially rock star celebrity types, yeah, we've covered this, as one of the most damaging trends for the long-term health of companies. I hate these rock stars! Boards should familiarize themselves with the characteristics of level 5 leadership and install leaders into positions of responsibility. Second, boards at corporations should distinguish between share value and share price. Boards have no responsibility to a large chunk of the people who own company shares at any given moment, namely the share flippers. They should refocus their energies on creating great companies that build value for the shareholders. That's an interesting point. So he's talking about people who actually invest the way it was intended like you think a company's going to do well, so you put money into it, as opposed to the actually like very uh, sort of meta, like post meaning, uh, post modern uh, way that most people treat investing now, which is simply based on whether a stock will go up. So it, it's. It's like an indirect measure of how good the company's actually doing. Who cares how good the company is doing? If you know more people are going to buy it, they might make the wrong 
the quote-unquote wrong decision by buying it, then the stock goes up and then you can sell yours. So it doesn't fucking matter what the company is doing. You get that. You get it. Managing the stock for anything less than a 5 to 10 year horizon confuses price and value and is irresponsible to shareholders. For a superb look at the board's role in taking a company from good to great, I recommend the book Resisting Hostile Takeovers by Rita Ricardo Campbell. Miss Ricardo Campbell was a Gillette board member during the coleman Mockler era and provides a detailed account of how a responsible board wrestled with the difficult and complex questions of price versus value. Wow. That actually sounds kind of interesting. Not enough for me to read it, but like, I would probably read that if I was on a board. But instead, I would just be bored. Can hot young technology companies in a go-go world have level five leaders? Wow, that's the oldest sounding sentence I've ever heard. That sounds like, that sounds like a 70-year-old FBI agent trying to go undercover. (laughs) At like a Justin Bieber concert. Excuse me, kids. Do you think hot young technology companies in this go-go world have level five leaders? And where can I buy some of your grass? My answer is two words. John Morgridge. Mr. Morgridge was transition CEO who turned a small struggling company in the Bay Area into one of the great technology companies. With the flywheel turning, this unassuming and relatively unknown man stepped into the background and turned the company over to the next generation. I doubt you've ever heard of John Morgridge, but I suspect you've heard of the company. It goes by the name of Cisco Systems? Uh, yeah, perhaps you've heard of them? How can you practice the discipline of first two when there is a shortage of outstanding people? First, at the top levels of your organization, you absolutely must have the discipline not to hire until you find the right people. Yeah, that's the premise of the question, but go on. The single most harmful step you can take in a journey from good to great is to put the wrong people in the wrong positions. (laughs) Oh no. Second, widen your definition of the right people to focus more on the character attributes of the person and less on specialized knowledge. People can learn skills and acquire knowledge, but they can't learn the essential character traits that make them right for your organization. Third, and this is key, take advantage of difficult economic times to hire great people, even if you don't have a specific job in mind. Yeah, do that. A year before I wrote these words... It's a weird thing to say. Nearly everyone bemoaned the difficulty of attracting top talent away from hot tech and internet companies. Now, the bubble has burst, and tens of thousands of talented people have been cast into the streets. Yes. Yes, indeed. The streets are brimming with educated white people searching for jobs. Actually, that's kind of true. Level 5 leaders will view this as the single best opportunity to come along in two decades. Not a market or tech opportunity, but a people opportunity. They'll take advantage of this moment and hire as many of the very best people they can afford and then figure out what they're going to do with them. How can you practice the discipline of the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus in situations where it's very hard to get the wrong people off the bus, such as academic institutions and government agencies? Okay, I thought that was going to be the exact same question, but it is different. It's sort of a, you know, to put a conservative spin on it, they're just sort of saying, how do you deal with all these laws about firing people? Um, 
But in my little business experience, I have observed that that appears to be an actual issue. I think, you know, the good side is job protection, but I think it does make it hard for a company to uh, do things about underperforming people. The same basic idea applies, but it takes more time to accomplish. A prominent medical school, for example, went through a transformation from good to great in the 60s and 70s. The director of academic medicine changed the entire faculty, but it took him two decades. He could not fire tenured professors, but he could hire the right people for every opening, gradually creating an environment where the wrong people felt increasingly uncomfortable and eventually retired or decided to go elsewhere. <laughs> so I can't fire you, but I can hire a bunch of my buddies, uh, a bunch of my uh, Italian buddies to, uh, well, his job is just to follow you around and look menacingly at you. So enjoy. Also, you can use the council mechanism to your advantage. Council capitalized the concept he talked about earlier. See chapter 5. Fill council seats entirely with the right people and just ignore the others. Yes, you might still have to carry the wrong people along, but you can essentially restrict them to back seats on the bus by not including them on the council. I'm an entrepreneur running a small company. How do these ideas apply to me? Directly, see chapter 9, where I discuss the application of the good to great ideas in the context of small and early stage companies. I'm not a CEO. What can I do with these findings? Plenty. The best answer I can give you is to reread the story at the end of chapter 9 about the high school cross-country coach. Where and how should I begin? Well, you mean other than buying my first book? First, familiar yourself with all the findings. Remember, no single finding by itself makes a great organization. You need to have them all working together as an integrated set. Then work sequentially through the framework, starting with first two and moving through all the major components. Meanwhile, work continuously on your own development toward level 5 leadership. I've laid out this book in a sequence consistent with what we observed in the companies. The very structure of the book is a roadmap. I wish you the best luck on your journey from good to great. Alright, and that's the end of the Q&A. The next Appendix 1A is Selection Process for Good to Great Companies. And this is where it's going to get real boring, so we will call it a day for now.